0: So, Josh... Start us off here, Mike. Thank you for coming. Thank One hour for me. Our first guest in a while. <laughs> so, you are a former, I guess, original of Free the People.
1: Yep. Yeah, an old friend and colleague, Josh Withrow, is here with us. Haven't seen him in a while. Glad to have him on board. He's now... Uh, crazy tech czar. We're, remind us where you're all working.
2: Yeah, I'm, I just uh, three months ago became the uh, director of tech policy, which is a new position at uh, the National Taxpayers Union Foundation. So, But still repping the orig- the OG Free the People uh, Von Mises shirt. My
1: shirt is like so beat up for that one. It's all cracked, all the paint on it, and I think it's, I've washed it too many times. I
0: save it for special occasions, and this yeah. is one. You have to Excellent. treat your t-shirts with care. Like, I'll wash my jeans. I never dry my t-shirts. You gotta hang those up. See, I'm, I'm just too lazy to do that. Yeah, it's same. not gonna happen. Mm-hmm.
1: But Maybe. we wanted to talk about tech policy today, so we thought Josh would be the pers- perfect person to talk
2: about tech policy with.
1: Yeah, so welcome. This would you like been... any whiskey before we get
2: started? Oh, yeah, this...
0: I'm going to hold off on that, actually.
2: Oh, well, this oh, is cool. a drinking show. Yeah, you know. all right.
0: <laughs> He's on the job.
2: Yeah, I got gotcha.
0: you. So that's fair, Josh. Just
2: put me to sleep on the podcast. That'd be embarrassing. Well,
1: that's worse. <laughs> has happened. It's you know, not the big of a deal. The conversation
0: die. does die. That'd be the first way it died like that. Yeah. <laughs> the um. So tech has been the big, well, at least what all the people on the right have been arguing. The left too, but the right's been extra angry about it. Big tech, especially the folks that want to break everything up. But you've been doing a lot of work on this, and you're not part of the break up big tech with. The, right, the bureaucrats and the courts side of the house. There's
1: such like a hostility towards big tech right now, which I think is a little bit understandable, but I just wanted to get your perspective
2: on all that. Yeah, as I was going to say, obviously you emphasize uh, the conservatives and the folks on the, the populists who don't like big tech, but don't underestimate how pissed off the uh, the left is as well in terms of uh, and, and, and it's actually kind of funny because it's led to a bunch of competing policy proposals in Congress and in reg- at times in the regulatory agencies that are competing visions, sometimes attacking the same Policy problem from exactly the opposite angle. And, and so it's been very frustrating to try to have a dialogue in between that because it's turned into a, it's devolved into sort of a, a shouting match where, where everything's made up and the facts don't matter. Uh, and, you know, probably one of the best examples of this is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which I think has become a buzzword at this point. I don't think anyone knows what it does, but, you know, the uh, conservatives are, you know, somewhat justly upset with social media companies because mm. of some of the ways that they moderate content and, you know, taking people's accounts down, the president's other, you know, right-wing or libertarian leaning folks and the left wants them to censor more. Um, And so you literally have laws on either side being like, censor more, censor less, and the tech companies are just getting beat on both sides in the middle until they're throwing up their hands and said, okay, just regulate us and tell us what to do.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that I think is so interesting is that people don't realize is that the tech companies are kind of begging to be regulated at this point, to absolve themselves of responsibility, and then to like have ways that they can cooperate with the regulations and help write the regulations so that their competitors will be kind of locked out of the market in that
2: regard.
0: What's the main driving force there for the tech company? Do you think it's I just want—I want to abdicate responsibility because this is too risky. Because I'm getting told too much. Or do you think that's secondary to I want monopoly power? Which one do you think is primary driver? You know, it's hard to say.
2: It, it's hard to say intent. You know, yeah. and it, it's probably different for each each actor. Um, but certainly, I I feel like especially Facebook, uh, because they have been kind of the focus of a lot of this sort of free speech issue versus you know fighting disinformation issue. I think they're just tired of it. And the bonus for it is if these regulations do come down the pike, it probably will immunize them somewhat from from their future competitors and for other people who might take their throne. I don't necessarily think that was their intent to start with in embracing these regulations, but it's, you know, it's, as always, that's the side effect, right, is, uh, you know, regulatory capture keeps competition. Well, yeah, play. back
1: in the day when we worked at FreedomWorks, we used to work on the internet sales tax issue, and I remember Amazon was one of the big lobbyists for that that law. They wanted the internet sales tax because they could afford to comply with it, whereas more decentralized platforms like eBay would have a lot harder time dealing with it.
2: But remember, initially, they were one of the biggest companies against the internet sales tax, uh, obviously, a pretty kind of helped them out that they uh, you know as they were a growing company that you know one of the things they didn't have to deal with was tax collection mm-hmm. um so that was one of the advantages that they got over brick and mortar and it, the it, it you kind of a, a push me pull you in terms of you know what caused what but uh, you know it was the fact that logic legislators were pushing for the internet sales tax what caused them to suddenly build a physical infrastructure of stores in all 50 states where it didn't you know where they didn't care whether they had to collect the tax anyway. Mm-hmm. We won't ever know. That's a it's a counterfactual. But the fact of the matter is they you know, when it got obvious that Congress was going to pass this Internet sales tax, Amazon built out a bunch of warehouses in all fifty states and we're like, Okay, well this won't hurt us anymore, so let's tax everybody. Right. And you're starting to see that, by the way, Amazon is doing the exact same thing with the corporate sales tax, where, you know, they're they're embracing uh, as a compromise, uh, potentially endorsing an increase in the corporate tax rate in order to hopefully forestall some of the democratic tax plans that um, that would hurt them more uh, than just a straight corporate tax hike rate. So, you know, it's not, not even just actual specifically tech policy these guys are dealing with, but it just kind of shows like... Um, yeah, these guys will use the opportunities when they can to tweak policies in ways that advantage them over their competitors. And it's just kind of the natural way they behave if the government gets too involved.
0: Yeah. And then appease the beast almost. It seems like the corporate tax is like, well, let's just give them a little bit and hope they back off. For...
2: Yeah. And it's, it's the inevitability. It's like, OK, they're going to sock us with it anyway. Let's just let's try to endorse the least harmful thing. Um, and, you know, from I can kind of see it from their perspective. It's not very sympathetic, I think, for a lot of folks uh that they that they think that way but it's just pragmatic um yeah they're, they're trying to make a buck and make a profit and please their shareholders and that's that's what they do
1: well, i want to talk about section 230 a little bit more because i think that's something that is people are interested in and for my so section 230 basically allows companies to host serve as web platforms and host a lot of content and not be legally liable for everything that's posted on their platform and people want to get rid of it because they say that um Companies like Facebook are not functioning as platforms, they're functioning as publishers, and they're trying to kind of moderate content too much. Like from my perspective, and it's always been the case for me, Is I feel like if you got rid of Section 230, you'd see a lot less free speech on the Internet, not a lot more, because then everybody would be legally liable for the stuff, anything that is posted on their website. So they're going to be a lot more restrictive on their moderation. Am I wrong about that?
2: No, I think you're entirely correct. And, and the thing that I, the why I laughed when you said, you know, treated like publishers and not like platforms is like, if you leave, section 230 is a very small snippet of law. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a law degree or that mm-hmm. much time to read. It's, uh, it's actually unusually easy. And uh, it doesn't distinguish between publishers and platforms. Yeah. That distinction that everybody use is not, is, is a legal fiction. It doesn't apply to this, to this case. Um, all it does is it says that if you host content on your platform that you did not create or have a hand in creating, that that you know you're not liable um, for if somebody posts something that someone thinks is defamatory, for example. Right. And so you know, yeah, it, it it literally made the economy of of social media and comment boards and Wikipedia and all of these sort of agglomerated third-party sites uh, possible, because there's just no possible way that any website can actually uh, successfully moderate all of the bad stuff that millions of users are contributing to their site in real time. And not miss stuff. And if they were legally liable for every one thing that somebody did that was harmful or abusive or hateful or misinformation, um, yeah, these guys, their their incentive would be to take down everything that's even remotely unsafe.
1: It's funny when you watch like the Tim said, at, like automated algorithmic content moderation that Facebook's doing now, and you get these little content warnings on all the posts that don't make any sense and are often just completely wrong. Um, it just shows you like how impossible it is to actually do any kind of large scale content moderation.
2: One of my favorite commentators in the tech policy space is is Mike Maznick who runs Techdirt uh, mm-hmm. which is an excellent website and blog if you guys if for anyone who is unfamiliar with it. He uh, he proposed something that he calls Maznick's impossibility theorem which basically is It's so, a great name for a theorem. Yeah, <laughs> which which is that you know his, but it's very simple which is that content moderation is impossible to do well at scale. And it's because language is subjective and expression is subjective. Well, context matters so much, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, an, an AI al- algorithm that is taking down, which, you know, Facebook relies heavily upon for its website, is always going to miss context. And so, you know, they're trying to take down legitimate hate speech and, like, you know, Stormfront type, you know, like actual like neo-Nazis and their mm-hmm. kind of content. Well, guess what? I had a friend get his account uh, locked for, for 30 days because he posted a World War Two fact site that had a picture of Hitler and swastika <laughs> on it. Well, their algorithm saw swastika and that it was talking about Hitler and it got caught up in that algorithm and yeah, he got dinged.
1: Yeah, it's like erasing history. Like you can't even talk about this stuff from a historical context because if you even mention it, it gets flagged by the algorithm. Did you hear about the the chess channel on YouTube that got pulled down temporarily? Oh, no. It's one of the biggest chess channels on YouTube. It's called a Gagneter, and it's like, if you're into chess, it's, I highly recommend it. It's an awesome channel, but he's, like, one of the biggest ones, and I guess he had videos up where he was saying, well, black is better here or white is better here, you know, and they got, they got pulled down because of an algorithm, and it's so stupid because it's chess. You have to talk about black and white when you're talking about chess, and uh, they, just the algorithms can't detect the context.
0: So it has to be so broad that to cover so much at a large scale. That we eventually, if it ever went into place, we would just have puppy pictures hmm. perpetually. Well, Pretty much.
1: I, that's not the worst thing in the world, but
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, maybe maybe the internet with none of the harmful content and only pictures of cats would be uh, more healthful for some people. But it would also be a lot less interesting, wouldn't yeah. it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess someone, uh, someone advocating for that would say we'd all go outside and spend time with our neighbors then. So maybe they're, you know, Touché. how would we react? But mm-hmm. I don't, it would make it very boring. Right.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's I think one of the things that, too, that both conservatives and folks on the left need to have a little bit of perspective on. is like, you know, politics has invaded everything to such an extent, but political speech is only one of the thousands of things that people do on the Internet. And yet it's, you know, it's where things get contentious Hmm. for a to a large extent. And um you know, a lot of these proposals are coming down, trying to regulate, you know, neutrality in political speech, or trying to get rid of disinformation, and all of that kind of stuff. And it's like these these policy changes that you make, like if you were to repeal or to modify Section 230, would affect all internet speech, all because everyone's getting worked up because you know mm-hmm. my political candidate got canceled, or this this one commentator I liked.
0: Do, do you think these problems? This might be this is a pretty big question. Just a thought I had the contention over social media and speech, which is very focused on political speech, do you think it would go away or naturally diminish if the stakes of the political game were diminished? Like, we wouldn't care so much about a giant? If, if it didn't matter so much who was president, or there wasn't so much power in Washington, D.C., would we just kind of be like, I don't really care that Facebook has a quote-unquote monopoly?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we wouldn't be spending so much of our time caring about what our neighbor is saying about a policy that affects us or something if the government wasn't involved in enforcing that.
0: Yeah, I
1: mean, I hear so many people when the presidential election comes around being like, if, if our candidate doesn't win, like, gay people are going to be put in cages and immigrants are going to be murdered. And it's like, these are really high stakes. I mean, I don't think those things are actually going to happen, but that's what people think is going to happen. And the stakes are so high that, it, of course, people are passionate about it. You can't really blame them for being passionate about it.
0: Yeah, agreed. And then if you do feel that way, you have no sympathy for someone who is censored. You're like, well, they're Mm -hmm. a hateful Nazi. That's good. And then you have, again.
1: It's okay to punch a
2: Nazi in the face, right? The the stakes are risen.
0: Well, it's it's kind of funny because actually one of the, uh,
2: (laughs) so, you know, Donald Trump gets pulled off of Twitter and he gets pulled off of Facebook and he goes off and forms his own website, which is basically just a place where he can post his rants and nobody can comment on it. And, uh, you know, that his website has a disclaimer, basically saying that, uh, hey, um, you know we're not we're not to be held liable for anybody who posts comments on the site. Right. He's literally and actually uh, the Trump's you know, folks in his circle have invoked seven Section two hundred and thirty protections to protect some of the stuff that they're getting, you know, sued for. Right. Um. By by various states, and so you know it, it just kind of shows there is also a bit of hypocrisy here. Like if oh, y- of y- you have to call it call it out. I mean, look, you know, there are plenty of conservatives who are calling for for content to get canceled. Uh, Offline off 2 yes. You know, what happens when, you know, our ostensibly Sort of, kind of our, our sort of side of the spectrum Gets in charge, do you think that they're not going to Use these, uh, you, you know, use these powers The same way?
0: Yeah. yeah. It's an effective argument, too, with 230 the Or I think it's effective when they When someone who was against it says It was made in, what, 1996, it's outdated Oh, uh, this is when we were playing Oregon Trail Or, you know, we're dying <laughs> of dysentery On Windows 95 <laughs> Like, how do you, I mean to someone who doesn't know too much about it, they're like, well, that makes sense. Internet's changed. Even Facebook is advertising on YouTube right now that we need updated internet In
1: 1995, internet was like the greatest.
0: It was so cool. <laughs> it
2: was an amazing time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a convincing argument a on west. the surface. Yeah, no, and I, and I kind of get it, I, you know, because it is true that very often government regulations do fail to adequately catch up to future technologies. And so I, I acknowledge that that is a problem in a lot of cases. In this case, I would say, you know, this law was fundamental to allowing everything that exists in the internet ecosystem to even happen in the first place. It's one of those things where had they not set this sort of light touch framework, had they done what some other countries did where, they, where the government much more heavily steps into free speech issues, thank God for our first amendment, by the way, which is amazing. Um, You know, we we may never have had social media and we certainly may never have had things like, I don't know, Wikipedia, which Wikipedia would be legally impossible without Mm -hmm. something like this liability protection. And so, you know, and now the funny thing is now um, people don't realize the history behind this law. The reason why it was passed was because the uh, was because courts had started uh, holding that sites could become liable for, for example, defamation. There was a famous case. Uh, Stratton Oakmont that got ruled in uh, in in New York State, where uh, the 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 web host uh, Prodigy uh, had had a message that got posted on its site, that um, that was considered defamatory by the company company Stratton Oakmont, and they successfully uh, you know got the, got courts to rule that you know Prodigy was liable for hosting this defamatory post on their site, and so that is that's why the uh, sponsors of, of what became Section Two Thirty, Chris Cox and Ron Wyden, got together and was like okay well. The Internet will never be able to grow if every single thing that everybody posts can get every host sued. We've got to do something about this. But the flip side of it that I think conservatives tend to forget is the other reason why it was passed as part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 was conservatives wanted websites to be able to pull more content down. They wanted them to censor more, as it were, Mm -hmm. because they were concerned about things like pornography and all of the other awful crap that people post on, you know, uh, unvirtuous stuff that people uh, post online. They wanted sites to be able to freely pull that down without fear of that moderating decision being a liability for them. And so, like you know, now kind of on the flip side, they're saying oh, sites are pulling down too much content, but we want them to be able to pull down some harmful content without fear of yeah being sued into yeah. oblivion. The and that history is, is lost on people. Yeah,
0: the problem is now they say they're pulling down stuff. They're pulling down the good stuff. They're pulling down right? stuff we like we instead like of the stuff they like. Yeah. It's and not okay. So now we have to flip it the other way. You mm-hmm. can't pull it down. It's it, yeah. It's it's interesting because we keep. I I feel like we blame the wrong party in a way like. All right, so society's values have shifted, and we now we don't like. This seems to be the popular opinion on the internet is your values aren't appreciated there, so well yeah, get stripped there's down? certainly
1: enough hypocrisy to go around. Like <laughs> that someone was pointing out to me the other day, they're like, oh, all Republicans complain about cancel culture, but they're the ones who started it with the like decency commissions and all that kind of stuff, which is sort of true, but I think that the cancel culture we're seeing now on the left is a lot more powerful like the right was always pretty impotent about trying to like censor uh, offensive content and things like that they they tried but they it was all kind of half-hearted and they never really succeeded uh, the left is a lot more successful at that kind of thing but it's certainly true that the right is as guilty as the left of this historically they don't do it as much anymore but all are like trying to censor music and comics and all that stuff all that came from the right it's ridiculous
2: yeah and it's you know and that's the thing is i i don't want to disregard the problem that is created by the by, by sort of the magnitude of these social media services, the size of the audience that lives on them, and what it means then when they do choose to to moderate content, uh, and it does have an effect sort of on the public dialogue when they won't allow certain posts on, about coronavirus to show up on Facebook. Uh, and I, I, but I think the threat that people overlook, particularly I think conservatives in this moment in time are, are overlooking, is the only thing more dangerous than. Uh, sort of the private power that they may have to dictate dictate the narrative that way is if the government steps in and becomes the arbiter of what proper content moderation is. I mean, yeah. uh, gov- uh, you know, because who are you going to appeal to when the company can say, well, the government says we we, uh, we do this and it's fine
0: everyone assumes their guy will be in power when Mm. it occurs yeah
2: every and also everyone assumes that in this moment in time this is what the market is always going to be there's always going to be a facebook and they're always going to be regulated the book
0: we're reading well yeah Yeah. this is this
1: is kind of the key of the point i think is people are very impatient and i think that we're always libertarians are always a little bit on the back foot on these kind of issues because i think there's a legitimate complaint about the things that facebook is doing um they're kind of suppressing True information that, are potentially true information, and they there being the the fact checkers and the arbiters of truth on a broad scale, and that's sort of a problem. And I I agree that that's a problem, but we don't, as libertarians, we don't really have a satisfying answer to people. Um, like, what do we do about that problem? We always kind of say, well, let's just wait, and it'll solve itself over the next 50 years, <laughs> and that's not satisfying to people because they want a solution now. And I think it's it's hard to convince people that our position is the right one because we don't have a quick fix, and everyone wants a quick fix. What's a quick fix that we can do, Josh? A quick fix.
2: Oh, boy. There well, isn't one, right? <laughs> yeah, well, Josh Hawley says we can just break them up. Right. <laughs>
1: you can't do one. But always, he's, he's always good. meeting with Zuckerberg. How, how do you go about convincing out. people that they need to be more patient and like let the market work when they want something done now?
2: Right. Yeah, and, and it's hard because, you know, it is true. I mean, everybody does see uh, the present moment through, you know, in that snapshot in time, and nobody knows what the future is going to look like. Uh, there was a... Um, You know, there was a political article that came out about a month or two ago that was uh, a sort of a lamentation of of the fact that FTC had missed their chance to file an antitrust suit against Google and had kind of missed their chance to break them up before they got as big as they are. And the funny thing is what the memo pointed out, and this is something I've written an issue brief to this point uh, for for National Taxpayers Union uh, about sort of how these regulations kind of turn into pre-crime. You're assuming that, that 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 these harms will continue into the future and that market forces and consumer choices won't uh, won't mitigate those harms by either creating new services or bypassing the current ones or or out innovating uh, uh, this problem. And so uh, you know you're you're turning regulators into uh, you know, Future fortune tellers staring into a crystal ball saying, "Okay, we have to regulate for this harm all the way into the future." Well, in the, well, when you do that, you're potentially forestalling, uh, you know, the innovation that could bypass an industry. It's funny. Um, I, I used the example of Blockbuster Video in that in that issue brief and and how um, at the time they thought it was it was potentially on the verge of becoming an unstoppable monopoly. Yeah. And what they didn't understand because they didn't understand how technology worked was that at the time they were investigating Blockbuster, Netflix was already growing. And they were about to launch their online streaming service, which now everybody is claiming is a monopoly and we need to regulate because Mm -hmm. um, that's
1: that's even more absurd than blockbuster because there's like 50 different competitors of Netflix. Uh, But
2: about eight years ago, there weren't. It was Netflix and then kind of Hulu uh, off in the corner. And everyone said that Netflix was going to be impregnable. Nobody was going to be able to approach their market.
0: Every major network has a streaming service. Right, CBS. So I have like CBS to watch the NFL because I don't have cable. Yeah. There's Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and and Hulu. And you get it with your Verizon package now.
2: And so that's what I don't think people are getting is like when you're when you're looking at Facebook and we say, okay, we don't like how they're regulating speech and it has a harmful impact on society. uh, You know, the 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 innovation that bypasses that may not come from another platform that replaces Facebook. In on its own f- field, yeah. it's probably going to come from some sort of te- uh, technological advance or or different way of thinking it'll about be social, social media. The social media chip they put in your brain yeah. access <laughs> to the internet directly. But you know, it'll, it you know very often the things that replace these these big industries when they start behaving in ways that we don't like come from completely out of left field. Yeah. it might be uh, you know this idea of interoperability where suddenly everyone owns their own data to an extent that would basically break a Facebook's business model because you know they make their money off of advertising based on your data, um, but you know, there's no guarantee that these companies are going to even exist 20 years from now, yeah. but everybody only sees the threat that they pose. Yeah, now.
1: we do well to remember MySpace and things like yeah. that. It's like, oh, MySpace was the big social media platform and just overnight gone.
2: AOL and Yahoo combined, the two companies combined, just got sold by Verizon for $5 billion total. Wow. Wow. And you know they're, they there's, basically are no longer. Who's
1: exist. buying AOL? For, there's, even for five billion dollars? Like, no. I forget actually. Why would you want to take that
0: purchase? There's a story of Yahoo when they had an opportunity to buy Google in its infancy yeah. and refused it. And <laughs> like, man,
2: they actually <laughs> they refused it at least on two occasions. Yeah, uh, and uh, it, even because there was a second stage later where Google offered uh, to sell for a larger quantity. I forget what it was like
0: five billion or something like that. There's that kind of raises the question too. I feel like Face does. Do you think, from your experience, I guess it, maybe it's a mix. Does Facebook, do they know their model is probably not the way of the future, and they're trying to innovate already ahead of it, or do you think they also have the same lack of foresight that us on the ground does? We're like, this is just the way the world's gonna work forever.
2: I think every company that achieves, uh, you know, a certain a certain size and status and sort of a comfort in its own, you know, any company that becomes comfortable eventually withers and dies. It and uh, you know, it may very well be that Facebook is realizing that. Uh, that their model isn't going to carry them into the you're, you know you're looking at uh, young folks are moving to platforms like TikTok and Snapchat and and platforms that I Clubhouse of, yeah Clubhouse exactly and, are you yeah, on Clubhouse yet Josh I am yes oh, yeah. I, yeah. You, I, I, why would really you say that yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but <you laughs> know, cool. but, the, but that's that's the point right is like another one of the reasons why they're probably in, you know embracing these regulations mm-hmm. is it may be the thing that helps kind of immunize them from the next wave that's coming for them. <laughs>